0: This is Film Trauma Podcast and I am your host Rick and I spent my entire life savings buying Blu-rays. I have a lot of downtime as a professional tattoo artist and instead of using that time productively to research my next art project, I spent it browsing Blu-ray forums, Instagram and Facebook groups dedicated to collecting films released by boutique labels like Severin Films, Vinegar Syndrome, American Genre Film Archive, Arrow, just to name a few. When I saw a Blu-ray collection that rivaled my own, I would feel green with envy and red with rage, and I was compelled to fill my shelves with the films I felt my collection was missing. Now I find myself on the brink of financial ruin, but I've decided to spend my time on movies rather than my life savings and rediscover all the things that made me fall in love with the movies in the first place. If you're curious about what's in my Top Shelf collection, I've logged everything on Letterboxd. You can find me there under Film Trauma. I'm also on Instagram at Film Trauma Podcast and Twitter at Film Trauma Pod. Now, let's get into today's episode. And I'm back. It's been a while since we had an episode of Film Trauma Podcast, but here I am again on Super Bowl Sunday, no less, and I really don't care about the Super Bowl. I don't follow sports, aside from the UFC. I'm not a huge fan, which is strange considering I grew up in Chicago in the 80s and everything was about the the Bears. And then it was the 93 Bulls, and I did enjoy that a little bit um, back then, but that was... That was the extent of it. I was an indoor kid. I would rather be watching the fly on cable than wasting my time with uh, sports. I thought they were very boring, but um, of course I was a big fan of Hulk Hogan and wrestling and all that stuff. But I, I lost interest in that fairly quickly. And I'm already off on a tangent. So... Back to the subject-at-hand movies. Um, Today I'd like to talk about a few films that I've watched again recently. Um, Rolling Thunder, for one, starring the great William Devane, Tommy Lee Jones, written, uh, the screenplay was by, and the story was by Paul Schrader, and also Haywood Gould. Um, Haywood Gould was brought in to punch up the scripts and add a little bit more dimension to the original script of Rolling Thunder. Um probably for the better, I guess. Apparently the original tone of the film was a little slower, a little bit was a little different than what Paul Schrader had envisioned. I'd I'd love to read the original script of Rolling Thunder just to see how it varied. I'm a huge fan of Paul Schrader's work. Of course, Taxi Driver and um, whatever that one with Ethan Hawke is I, re- I recommend it to everyone and I, and I can never remember the name of it but I thought it was really good uh, his movies are—they can be a little slow so I understand um, why they may have brought Haywood Gould in to punch it up but I found Rolling Thunder to be actually a really slow film anyway but in any case um, directed by who directed this? Do, do, do. Oh, John Flynn, correct. And I think this was his his first film, John Flynn, from what I understand. Anyway, um, I have the Shout Factory release of Rolling Thunder on Blu-ray, and when you open it up, it's a it's kind of a bare bones release. There is no commentary, but that's okay. When you open it up, it does have the reversible sleeve. It has the Japanese uh, poster of uh, William Devane loading his pistol, his revolver, I'm sorry, looking very much like Robert De Niro in Taxi Driver, uh, bare-chested with the gun holster around his shoulders, but on the opposite side, um, we see the, the hook for a hand while he's uh, sawing the barrel down on his, his shotgun. Um, it's, it's a really good story. If you're unfamiliar with Rolling Thunder, the story follows around uh, Major Charles Rain, who uh, was released from a prison camp in Vietnam, and he comes home with his friend, uh, John Voden, uh, played by Tommy Lee Jones, who was fantastic, steals the show. And it's a, basically just about um, Charles Rain adjusting to his daily life and when he gets home he you know he can't sleep he keeps having flashbacks of being tortured he he comes home to find that his his son is now you know 10 12 years old maybe he's 11 something like that he doesn't know his son at all but um fortunately his son um is very warm with him he's very open to the idea of getting to know his father And we don't get a lot of emotional depth there. He doesn't go too far into that relationship uh, for a good reason. But um, Charles Rain, Major Charles Rain, um, who they just referred to as Major in the film, is just adamant about maintaining a relationship with his son. So immediately are just thinking, okay, that's what this is going to be. He comes home and and his wife um, informs him that there is all this military back pay that he's entitled to that she didn't spend. So he does have a bit of good news there that although life is difficult for him to, to readjust to, he does have all this back pay that he can do whatever he wants with. And she's, and he's very happy about that. He said, that's very good news. But in that moment where they finally have, and in his first day back, um, he's reconnecting with his wife and She admits to him right away that she's been with another man. And it was um, this guy who's been hanging around. He's a cop. And they don't go too much into that other than you see that he's annoyed by it, but he's not hostile. He doesn't treat her badly. He doesn't treat her differently. You can just see that he's very pensive, and he probably is holding in a lot of anger and a lot of rage. From everything he's been involved in in the last however long, he's been a prisoner of war. And so um, this guy, I think his name was Cliff. Um, he comes out um, to the shed where Charles Rain is, is sleeping. He can't sleep inside, so he's he's sleeping in a cot out in the shed. And they have this weird moment where he tries to make peace with uh, Major by saying, "Hey, you know, hope I you know I wouldn't be a man if I didn't." come to you and apologize to you and say, I'm sorry. I hope there's no hard feelings. And they kind of clear the air. They release a little tension. But it also goes into this strange moment where Charles Rain um, makes Cliff, you know, he, he senses that Cliff wants to know more about um, what happened over in Vietnam, how he was tortured and things like that. And he's like, no, no, I don't want to hear anything about that. You know, it's, it's too gruesome. But he does it, and he puts on this display where he makes him tie his hands behind his back and rope and, and lift him up really high and it's just like it's it's a very intense moment and William Devane plays it so well it's very very intense and it's very masochistic but I think in some ways maybe a little satisfying for him for Charles Rain, a little um, calming and to have some bit of normality as, as crazy as that might be uh, return to his life um So he attempts to clear the air there, and you get the sense that they sort of smooth things over. Uh, After that, um, he, Charles Major, is presented by the city with a silver dollar for every day that he was captive in uh, Vietnam. And there is the setup for the rest of the film. Um, Out of nowhere, Charles Rain comes home, and there's men in his house, and they just want his money. They want all these silver dollars, and they're ready to torture him. They're ready to mess him up big time if he doesn't reveal where these silver dollars are. Now, of course, Major Rain will not break. You cannot break his resolve. He's just spent however long, maybe a decade, you know, maybe not a decade, but he's been five years at least in this um, prison being tortured. Nothing that these schmoes can bring to the table is going to rattle him at all. And they know that after they toss him around a little bit, they rough him up. They know this guy's not going to break. He's not going to give us our money. So, what do they do? They, they go to the extreme, which was something I had never expected to see in this film. I, I got this film for the first time on VHS from the library. I was about 16. And it, that was 1994. And that was the year I seen Pulp Fiction for the first time in Clerks. And um, I fell in love with Rolling Thunder. Um, I could not find a copy of it. You know, back then, it was just VHS. So, um, I watched it, the library returned it, and I just always thought about Rolling Thunder, and I always thought about this scene. It just stuck with me, where, to get more information out of Major, they stuff his hand in a running garbage disposal, and they chew it off. And they kill his wife and kids in front of him. So... Now this movie has turned into, um, from a POW story to fucking Death Wish, okay? Now it's Death Wish. So, um, Charles Rain is recovering in the hospital, and Cliff, uh, the wife's new boyfriend, comes to him and says, hey, what is going on? You need to, you know, I wish you had a, uh, Charles Rain, he's, he's just, he's pretending like he doesn't know any information about these guys. He doesn't know their names. He doesn't know anything about their... anything, what they were doing, where they were going. But, of course, um, the men have given it all away. They've said their names. They've said where they're coming from. They've mentioned all these things. And Charles Rain, the Major, has memorized all of these things, their faces, the, the towns, everything about them, and will not tell anybody about any information about them because he wants to get them himself. So... Um, as much as Cliff tries to get the information out of him, uh, Major won't budge. So he um, has to develop this relationship with this girl, this girl who presents, who presented the Major with these silver dollars in the day uh, he came home, or you know from the ceremony from coming home. And um, you know she, he sorts of he sort of uh, he's trying to recover. You don't really get the sense, I guess, that he is. Uh, much. This is sad. He, he's he's very uh, blank and emotionless. William Devane. He plays a character very blankly. Um, um, he doesn't seem terribly tortured or or bothered by much. You know, even when they were uh, torturing him, he doesn't. Uh, you know, he doesn't. He, but you know, he is. He's been through a lot. So you know, he's a. Uh, you know, upset. But in any case. Um, he develops a relationship with his girl and that comes into to play later. But we go back to, um, Tommy Lee Jones and Tommy Lee Jones's character. When we first see him, he's just, I mean, what a stud this dude is, right? He he's, he's amazing in this film. He's young. I don't know how old he is. Maybe he's 25. He's under 30 for sure. Just a total stud. And he's, he gets off the plane. He's interacting with Major and he's like, you know, come by, come to my house sometime. And if you're ever in the area, and we'll, you know, we'll catch up. So you, there's this great scene where Major and um, Voden part on the tarmac after they're released from the plane at the beginning. And you get this sense Tommy Lee Jones is looking around. He's, he's, he's lost. He doesn't know what the fuck to do, how to adjust to his life. And he has this horribly obnoxious family or coming back to greet him while I'm sure he's thrilled, you know, somewhere inside, he has to be happy that he's back. But um, the reality is, you know, you take these guys, according to this, is, this is from the documentary On the Disc. I don't know if it was Tommy Lee Jones or William Devane. One of the two says in the film, you know, you take these guys who are 18 years old, teach him to kill, and then you send him home. And now you have to adjust to real life. And it's like, no wonder. Maybe there's William Devane that said that. And now, now, now you wonder why they have so many problems. And that's really uh, Tommy Lee Jones' character. Is He's he's um, he's just not happy. He wants to go and kill. He wants to kill people still. And according to um, Paul Schrader, and I don't know if this was the case if this made it into the final cut of the film, they don't touch on it at all. But Paul Schrader, in an interview, he talks about how he had this story. The idea of the story in the beginning was to have a, a, a veteran who had gone to war, never killed anyone, never fired a gun, and was taken prisoner, prisoner of war, captive, sent home, and now he's a hero. And now he has to fight a real war on his home soil against these uh, opposing forces. You know, So... That's I don't know if, if that's the case. They don't say one way or the other. They don't imply that Major had never seen combat. But if that is the case, um, it would have been an interesting layer to add onto the character. I'm not really sure how they would have gotten that out. Maybe a couple of lines of dialogue, since Major doesn't really speak that much in the film. He could have said that to the girl at some point. Maybe he does, and I missed it. I, I don't know. But um, it was something that I didn't pick up on until I listened to the interview with Paul Schrader. So while uh, Major is convalescing in the hospital, uh, Tommy Lee Jones comes to visit him. And he says, you know, if you need help, let me know. Basically, we got to get these guys. They cannot get away with it. And they're interrupted by the girl. The girl who the Major, she's sort of forming this rudiment, this relationship with as much as he can form a relationship. He's interested in her, of course. There's part of him that is, but he's he's just so, um, you know, uh, fixated, fascinated, uh, obsessed with this thing. So um, he takes off, and Tommy Lee Jones takes off. They're uninterrupted, and he, he gives him this look like, man— you know, we have to get these guys. You just give me the word, man, and we'll go. We'll get these guys, and that's what happens. Basically, um, um, he decides that he's gonna go find these guys. Takes his shotgun. He, t- you know, he he gets ready. He does. He has his Rambo moment where he suits up, does all of his stuff. He gets a Cadillac. He's gifted a Cadillac in the beginning of the film. He drives a Cadillac down to Tommy Lee Jones's uh, family home and uh we see um um franklin from texas chainsaw massacre uh he's in this uh, paul um i not sorry i can't remember his name the actor's name but uh, he's in this he plays one of the relatives they don't say who he is but um they all he all he has to do is tell Vodal, hey man let's go he suits up in his uniform and they head off to mexico to get these guys and when they get there, um, the movie is pretty slow up until this point. Not a whole lot of action happens, aside for some a few flashbacks um, and their journey there. He, you know, he he roughs up a couple of guys, and he uses the girl he's dating as bait to sort of lure these other men, out, these criminals out. And she catches on and she gets really mad at him. You know, like, what are you doing using me as bait and all this stuff? There's not a whole lot of action, and there's a ton of downtime when they're laid over in the hotel and developing the relationship and all that stuff. And, and you can tell, like, you know, I, I'm watching it and I get it's, you know, it's a 70s movie and um, you have to have more patience be, be a bit more forgiving with these films. And I'm like, okay, what's going to happen is um, they're saving their wad for the third act. And they do. Um, they get to the the whorehouse um, and the brothel, sorry if that's not in the parlance of our time. Um, but they get to the the brothel and Tommy Lee Jones is just got a hard on to go in there and kill these dudes. He just he cannot wait. He's not nervous. No, he's 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 hard as a rock, ready to go in there, except not for the not for a woman, but for the violence, right? Because his task, the major tasks him with uh, uh, getting a uh, a woman, bringing her up to the room, and waiting, and major is going to signal Vodal. By tapping his rifle, barrel, and then when that happens, come out guns a blazing, basically. And that's what he does. Major comes around the back of the building, takes a guy out, comes up the stairs, into the back door, and now we're, it's a taxi driver. Okay, it's basically a taxi driver. There is a huge moment where all the men come rushing out of the room. The setup of the, the top of the brothel is just this big apartment-type area with all these screen doors. Okay, And there's a woman and a John in every single room. And the reason they were going there is because they're going to take out the first guy. So the first guy comes out, and they blast him with a shotgun. And they're, they're blasting everybody, left, right, and center. And it is uh, fan-fucking-tastic. It, it, it's, it's, it's the greatest. I mean, this is the movie. This is the moment in the movie I've been fucking waiting for the entire time. And I was really, really, really happy when I seen it. I absolutely loved it. I thought it was. I thought it was great. It was so well done. And um, there's an interview with the stunt coordinator in the in in the interview uh, supplemental section of the Blu-ray. He talks about how that he had um, no stuntmen to work with on set it was it was only the bouncers and and then the rest you know the 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 extras that they had cast as these big dudes and they weren't stuntmen they weren't stunt actors they're just big men so when you shot you know they, you would fire the weapon at these guys and yank them back um through the doorway and they had the squibs exploding on their chest and all that i mean these guys were astral traveling right it's kind of how he put it so i thought that was very interesting Interesting little um, bit of information that um, just these giant men that they had hired these extras, but uh, the special effects look great. Um, the The stunt core, the fight choreography was a little clunky. Not a huge deal. It wasn't a deal breaker. by any means, and there's a lot of really cool moments with the major sharpening his hook hand um, into you know into into blades, and he grabs a guy by the ball, rips his balls out. And oh, and then there's a, also a sequence with Cliff. Now, Cliff um, is tipped off to the whereabouts of Major Rain and his girlfriend. So from there, he's able to track them down, uh, and he runs afoul of some of the men who killed the the wife and the son. Now, he has an emotional. Cliff has an emotional investment in this as well, and he says he's a cop. You know, he has access to records and things like that. So it was just a really kind of, I guess a way to shortcut the story. Like how, how would this cliff character have this information and who would he talk to to get this? You don't have to necessarily make him a cop. There's other ways you can do it, but um, that's the route that they went in this. They just made him a cop. That's how he gets the information quickly and is able to mobilize and get to Mexico and um, try to take, his part in the revenge process. And he does. And there's a there's a cool sequence where they're in this abandoned church and he gets into a, a gunfight with these dudes. He takes a couple of them out and he gets taken out. He gets killed there in this really cool abandoned church. And it was a really, really, really cool scene. Um, from one, And it was one of the bad guys, one of the big, tall, blonde bad guys who had um, fucked Major up in the beginning. He's punching him in the gut and yelling at him and stuff. So yeah, um, and, in the end, and so after all that, they get to the gunfight and then the brothel, and these guys are both wounded. They're shot a bunch of times, majors shot, uh, Vodal's shot, and but they don't die. They sort of uh, limp off into the sunset. Um, they've went from America to another lawless land, Mexico at the time, which maybe that was seen as a sort of a lawless land, I don't know, south of the border. And they kill all these dudes. They, they kill everybody in the fucking brothel. Every man in there is dead. Um, they spare all the women, of course. And then they leave. And that's it. That, that's the end of the movie. They're, they're, they're limping out, wounded. And, yeah. I was okay with it. You know, like, I, I didn't really know. It ended very abruptly. I thought they were going to both die in a blaze of glory. I thought least Vodal would die. Because there's a really uh, poignant scene when Tommy Lee Jones comes to visit Vodal's family, and he he you know he has this very uh, overbearing wife, and she's very obnoxious, and the family's nice enough, but they're fucking annoying, and they're annoying the shit out of him, right? He just wants to fuck off. He doesn't he doesn't want to be there. He doesn't want to be involved in it. He just he can't handle it. And um, the only, you get the sense that the only one he cares about is his father. Right, he packs all of his stuff in his duffel bag he gets his uniform on he comes out and he says bye daddy that was a really good moment and, and Tommy Lee Jones sells that shit so fucking hard and he's a stud the entire film he steals the show and no wonder why that dude became such a huge star because his performance oh my god when he has that shotgun and he kicks the door in you could see the boner in his pants when he blow, bow, blows that dude away, man. It was awesome. A really cool moment. And I love Rolling Thunder. Um, it's been a long time since I'd seen it. I not seen since I was 16 years old. I just got the Blu-ray the other day, and I loved it. And I think everybody should watch this. I was a little sad there wasn't more to the Blu-ray. There wasn't a, a director's commentary or... You know, fan cut com- and anything, but you know it doesn't really need it. The movie stands fine on its own, um, and I was going to own it no matter what. I just wanted to have a high res version of this film, so that's Rolling Thunder. Straight Time with Dustin Hoffman is one of my favorite films of all time. I saw this for the first time when I was about sixteen. I rented it from the library on VHS in 1994 um as i did with most films i i grew up really poor so we lived right next door to the library my dad uh, was a drunk he was never around uh, he would be across the street at the bar a lot and since we live right next door to a grocery store a tiny little grocery store and a bar um, and a restaurant and a uh, the library I was able to spend a lot of time over there and the video store um, renting tapes and I rented everything if I couldn't get it for free at the library I would find it uh, at the soft tech video right next to my house and this was one of the ones I picked up straight time from the library along with Rolling Thunder two films that left a lifelong impression on me I was never able to locate. A copy of Straight Time uh, in the during the DVD rise in the mid 2000 early 2000s. I don't know if there was ever a DVD uh, released of this. I'm sure there was, but I never saw it. And I'm glad that this edition exists now because Straight Time is a wonderful film. I really, really like it, and I recommend it for anyone. It, basically, it's about uh, Max Dembo. Played by Dustin Hoffman. He gets out of prison. Just trying to to live the straight and narrow life. Readjust to society. And he has this jag off uh, probation officer. Parole officer. Played by M. Emmett Walsh. In his like sleaziest role. Now here's a guy who... Here's an actor who just grates on my nerves anyway. He's been in everything. You know? And you'd definitely recognize him. If you've seen him. And he's just such a piece of shit in this film. He just just gives Max such a hard time. Max is just trying to live his life. He gets out and he's hassling him, you know, about where he's going to live, what he's going to do. But in the beginning, uh, Dustin Hoffman strikes up a deal with his probation officer and says, hey, you know, um, if he, he says, he says to him, look, if you find a place to live and a job within a week. You won't have to stay at this halfway house, and Max agrees. He says, "Great!" So he does. He goes out. He finds a a, a little uh, hovel, a little room to live in, seventeen bucks a week. Uh, one of those flop houses with um, a bathroom, a shared bathroom for like six rooms. I don't know if you've ever been in one of those places before, but they're rough. I've been in one. They're not a lot of fun. Um, A tiny little room and he manages and he goes to the uh, unemployment or the the employment agency where he meets the young Teresa Russell, who looks fantastic in this film. And she's great. She's young, fresh faced and, you know, uh, I think she's like 19 years old when she did this. And um, she's great. Great actor. They strike up a friendship and later a relationship in the film and she helps him get a job at the cannery at this cannery. And um, Teresa Russell's character is very playful with Max, right? Like you know, she makes a mistake. Um, she forgets to do. She she actually hangs up a call when she's transferring a call to another secretary, and the secretary can reams her ass about it. So then she gives this really mocking, playful, um, uh, sassy comeback to her. This reaction that Max sees, and he's he's instantly attracted to her, right? In the entire audiences. Right, because Teresa Russell is just she's magnetic. Um, she just looks like the girl next door, so they struck up a relationship. But Max can't seem to keep out of trouble, and he doesn't even do anything. Right, like he's living his life, he's doing his thing. He gets out and he goes over to see his buddy uh, Gary Busey, and um, Kathy Bates plays Gary Busey's wife. And she is very, uh, she, she likes Max, they all like Max, but she's, um, you know, reticent about having Max around, because he just got out of prison, and she doesn't want any trouble. She wants to keep her husband, they have a kid, he wants to keep everything, you know, you know don't come around my house and, and fuck everything up now. And Gary Busey's great in this film, he's got such charisma. He looks super young. I mean, I think this is probably before a Buddy Holly. Um, and he's fantastic. He's his Jake Busey, his little boy, is in this as well, and they have great chemistry together. In fact, there's a really uncomfortable scene where uh, Gary Busey, Kathy Bates, Dustin Hoffman, and Jake Busey are all sitting around the table, and they they just finished eating their dinner plates around the table, and they're mm-hmm. drinking beers and. And Gary Busey is uh, interacting with his son and play fighting, and um, this uh, Jake Busey socks him in the face, and he has a real like visceral reaction, like "Hey, don't hit me," you know. And it makes everybody uncomfortable, but they, but they, they play through it. They don't break. None of them break. It's a really, really, really good scene. And Gary Busey, if, if he wasn't if he wasn't acting. I would believe it if he wasn't acting. But if, if he was acting in that scene, the dude was... He, he... Unbelievable. He really, really got mad, it seems like, when he when his son accidentally punched him in the face when he wasn't ready for it, right? But he apologizes afterwards and says, Hey, I'm sorry I blew up at you. But that's just a testament of how great young Gary Busey was. And... You know, he's certainly not that way anymore. But he... He was a great. He, he was great then. He was a great lethal weapon too. Not to get too. Not to get off track. But um, so they have that interaction, and it basically just sets up Gary Busey's uh, Gary Busey's character. Max uh, goes home to back to his, uh, his little uh, rental room there, and he finds his probation officer in his uh, house. He's looking around, and he find, And the probation officer finds a, a, a full burnt m- book of matches, completely burnt, all at once. And he's giving him a hard time because that's how you know that was an indicator of that you that, that um, heroin addicts uh, would cook all their dope in a spoon using the entire book, right? Because it'll burn longer and more intensely. So he handcuffs him to the bed and he's checking him for tracks and all this stuff. And he's like, "Hey, man, what are you doing this for? You know, you don't have to. You don't have to lock me up like this. You know, I'm going to cooperate. You look in my eyes, man. Look at my." Eye. And um, he's like, relax, I'm just doing my job. And, you know, at this at this moment, you really hate uh, Walsh's character, the, the parole officer, probation officer, whatever he is, He's such a dick. And he gets his max thrown back in jail. And we don't know exactly how long he's in jail for. But when he comes out again, he, at the end, he's got a full beard, you know, which indicates that he'd been in there for several weeks. And um, when he's in there, he's visited by Teresa Russell's character. And she says, "Hey, call me when you get out." You know, and, and Max is—he like, doesn't. He gets the sense he doesn't want any visitors. He doesn't want anyone coming to see him in there because it makes him sad. It just makes him um, hate being in there. You know, like he—he he was just starting over with his life. All he wants is to start his life over and be a productive member of society. In fact, he tells that to his probation officer in the very beginning. Now they say in screenwriting, it's okay sometimes. For your protagonist to tell the audience what they want. It's okay just to say it. Okay? Like, this is what I want. And he does that. Max. His character. He says to the probation officer in the very beginning, I just want to be like everybody else. I want to stay out of trouble. All this stuff. I want to get a job. I want a girl. I want someone to love me. And it's very sincere. He comes up very sincere. Now, I think in in that moment... Max, Max believes it. but the reality is, is is Max is an unsalvageable person. And his immediate like gut reaction to any kind of adversity or anything like that is just to rebel, is to rebel and to go back to his old ways of being a criminal. That's all he knows. And they illustrate that later on um, at the very end of the film. When they show these photographs of Max throughout the years. But we'll get to that. So, Max starts off after he gets out of prison. And the, the scene that sticks out in my mind most of all is the scene after he, his probation officer comes to him in prison and says, Oh, sorry, Max, you know, I haven't been able to get down here. I've been busy. You know, I've been too busy to come and see you. And Max is really, he's hes angry. He's trying to be, he's trying to keep it under control. He just wants to get out. He wants to get out of his life. He wants to see his girl and get back to his life. And the probation officer says, okay, look, you were clean. Someone was shooting up in your room, but it wasn't you because you were clean. So we're going to let you out, okay? And he says, fine. So they're driving down the expressway. And is just giving him a hard time, he's like, come on, man. Come on, Max. Just tell me. Tell me who was shooting up in your room. Tell me who was doing it. And he's like, "Well, I just can't tell you that." And Dustin Hoffman in this scene is keeping it so fucking cool. He's looking straight ahead. They're they're driving in the car, and he's not even. He's like, "Okay, you know, I, I don't you know? I'm not gonna tell you. I'm Not gonna tell you who was shooting up, because I don't think that Max knew who it was. It, it couldn't have been. He couldn't have known, because he wasn't there." Right? At least on film, unless there's a deleted scene or something else something that I missed, um, he, he doesn't know who it was. Right? So in that moment, when Walsh is giving him a hard time, he grabs the wheel of the car. He jerks him through traffic, and there's this really exciting scene where they're crossing over all these lanes of traffic, zipping in and out, almost uh, smashing into some cars that are parked on the shoulder of the road. And they finally pull over. And he drags him out of the car. And, and, and this whole time, he's, 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 he's punching him. He's elbowing him in the gut. He's like, you motherfucker. You know, you had me locked up for nothing. I didn't do shit, you know. And um, he's, he's elbowing him. And, and, and it's, for that moment, you're just, it was so satisfying to see Walsh's character uh, get the shit beat out of him. And Dustin Hoffman get his bit of revenge right then. Right. So he, they pull over to the side of the road. And he pulls him out of the car. And he handcuffs him to a fence, really, really high on the fence. He lifts his arm up as high as he can to the highest point, so he has like no leverage on his legs, right? And he's hanging there by one wrist. He's handcuffed, and they're on a busy Los Angeles expressway, right? And then he, to add insult to injury, he unbuckles Walsh's pants and pulls his pants and his underwear down, and he's bare ass, dick swinging. On the, on the expressway and people are driving by hey fat ass and it's, it, it's completely uh, reminiscent of an earlier scene when Walsh handcuffed Max to a bed and left the door open when he said I'm gonna go make a phone call and Max is there exposed and a little girl just walks by and stares at him and Max feels very humiliated in that moment because he didn't do anything he just wants to be normal And this man is not allowing him to be normal. So he feels like he's always going to be this criminal guy. So why not just be this criminal guy? Why be anything else? So he does. And at this point, Max decides to return to his life of crime. And he does with a vengeance. And he starts by doing petty things. And we we see a cameo from Eddie Bunker's character. And he's great. And there's another cast of characters; these different guys that he winds up meeting, and uh, Harry Dean Stanton and all this. And they pull these, pull these menial jobs. And then they, and then they, they do this. Um, and then uh, Max and Teresa Russell's character; they have their their romance. They're doing all their thing. And he comes, and uh, Max comes home late one night, and he's covered in in brick dust. And she's like, "What's all over you? You know, what did you do? What did you do?" And he's like, "Oh, I had to." I had to bust through a wall and she says why I needed I needed something <laughs> you know you know like why wouldn't I I think I, I can't remember what it was it was like I don't know if it was like a they busted through the wall to get a safe or something on the other side I, um, I I'm sorry it, it escapes me I can't remember exactly what it was but that was the first like little job right So then they decide to rob a bank and it goes off pretty well. Harry Dean Stanton is his buddy. And they, they go in, and um, it's a really, really intense scene. This big bank, they run in really quick with their shotguns. They rob the place, and you have Harry Dean Stanton uh, keeping on point, you know, calling off the time. They control the crowd. They get in. They make everyone, you know, get down. And Dustin Hoffman runs through, empties all their, the, the money into the bag, but he just keeps going longer and longer and longer, and Hardeen stands in the impatient. He's saying, 20 seconds, Max. Come on, Max. Let's go, Max. You know, don't take so long." And, and then, as the viewer, you really feel that tension in that moment. Like, oh my God, these cops are going to come, busting in at any second. And they don't wind up killing anybody in that scene, which is good because it's not—it's not what you want. You know, you don't want to see that. You don't want the heat turned up that fast in this. There's been a lot of bank robbery movies over the years I've seen, and uh, this was a this was a really really good scene. So um, they get in the car, they drive off, and all this stuff, and they seem pretty satisfied by it. But again, uh, Max gets a lead. He winds up um, taking his girlfriend out to a jewelry store, and he wants to buy her something nice. And they look around at all this jewelry, and some of these pieces are like eighty five hundred dollars, four thousand dollars. But he picks one he can afford with all the all those ill-gotten gains, all the money he just stole from the bank, right? But he gets this idea, and he goes to Harry Dean Satin and says, I want to knock off something bigger. I'm going to rob this jewelry store. So they do. And they get to Gary Busey. They bring him along, and they tell him to wait behind the bank and, you know, wait five minutes, and we'll be out. But Dustin Hoffman... Um, falls victim to his flaw, his greatest flaw, which is he was just he was just, he was just uh, a little too greedy. He just wanted to get too much. He was looking for that one specific piece that his girlfriend really liked, and he couldn't find it. Either they had sold it, or he just couldn't find it, or whatever. But the, the 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 jewelry store scene was great because they're in there and they're smashing through all of the. Uh, the plate glass with their shotgun barrels and his big gloves on and Max has his really cool goggles and they're just breaking the glass and taking all the jewels and it's really 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 intense and really cool so they finally after taking way too long Harry Dean Stanton and just pissed at him he's like I'm, I, this is the last time Max I'm not doing this again you know you're just you're fucking around too much so they run out the back door the car's gone Gary Busey has driven off right so they they just huff it on foot they take off through the neighborhoods, running through the alleys, and the cops are on them. And they wind up hopping a fence and getting in the shootout with the police. And Harry Stanton is shot in the gut and he's killed. Now, it's unclear if Max, like, took... I think he did go back and take the jewels from him. Um, but um, he leaves him there to die, Right. And he takes all these jewels, and he, he manages to escape, Max, and he wraps them all up in a shirt. And then he goes to find Gary Busey. And, you know, he, he throws a fit, and he's beating him up, and he's yelling at him, he's screaming at him, what did you do, where were you, and and Gary Busey's very apologetic. He says, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I got scared, I just got scared. And it's a really great scene. Uh, Busey's very emotional Max is very emotional He tells him He's dead Our friend is dead And it sucks because I liked him He was my friend And he's dead because of you So You know Max uh, Forgives him And he hugs him He hugs Gary Busey's character And he shoots him and he kills him And he runs off So Then At the end He Runs off to Meet his girlfriend at the, um, um uh, the uh, employment agency, and they run out to start a life together. And he says, "We got to go now. We have to go now, 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 now." And they go. And along the way, uh, he tells her what happened, and she gets. She says her her reaction is so uh, violent to uh, what he tells her that she throws up. She gets out of the car and throws up, and they have this really intense scene. And you don't really know what's going to happen between them. And this is Max's, like, self-destruction, right? This is, like, his self-destructive behavior. His, his, his he, he, he just, he can't, he's dangerous. He's a dangerous guy. He's an unpredictable guy. As good as his intentions might seem to himself, he's incapable of, he's unsalvageable. He's incapable of, of putting anyone else's needs uh, before his own. And, and, and for him, the end will always justify the means. Right, so he, he's a dangerous guy to be around. But in the end, like his he does have a redeeming moment that in the end, when they are at the coffee shop having a beer, Max decides that he's going to send her home, send his girlfriend home, and they have this exchange this moment. And you know, he says, um, she says, Are you sending me home? and he says, Yeah. And, you know, she's upset by it, but, you know, when he kicks her out and tells her to, to leave, he says, you know, uh, because I'm, uh, I'm going to get caught. I don't want you to be with me because I'm going to get caught. And that was the only time in the film that I think Max puts someone's feelings ahead of his own. Now, it has kind of an ambiguous ending because Max just rides off into the sunset. There's no resolution to any story there. It's okay, like it doesn't. It doesn't really bother me. But in um, some sort of a more of a traditional sense, I maybe would have liked to seen a more of a resolution. But because it was the same sort of resolution, uh, like in Rolling Thunder, or there was no resolution. They just sort of walk off into the sunset. Both of the anti heroes live. And you don't know, maybe Max doesn't ever get caught. Maybe he does. But I like Max enough that I hope he got away. I hope he didn't get caught. Uh, maybe I do, though. I don't know. He's kind of a shithead. But maybe if he didn't get caught, if he managed to fence all that jewelry and live for 15 years on all that money, um Who knows? He, he definitely he he definitely got caught, right? Because at the end, they show Max's mugshot, and then they show the mugshots um, for his entire life. And they have this really young photo of Dustin Hoffman as a teenager. And they zoom in on that. And that's the last shot of the film, is this photo of Dustin Hoffman. And they zoom in really close on his eyes. And that was straight time. It's, it's a, it's a great film. I loved it. It, it was um, very inspirational for me. Um, I was struggling. I, I written a screenplay and I entered it into several competitions and it did really well. And from that screenplay, I managed to make several connections in the industry and by way of these, um, I don't know, producers and agents and stuff. And, 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 I don't know, there's something always I felt was missing from my story, my screenplay. And when I watched Straight Time again, it sort of inspired me to go back into my screenplay and, and try to, to turn it into a script that wouldn't just place in the finals, but could potentially win. Which is what I hope for. That's my goal for it. And it, it, it You know, Straight Time and Rolling Thunder were two films that inspired me to write this script. Even though my film, the script that I wrote, is nothing like Straight Time or Rolling Thunder. It was inspired by it. Those two films. And there are threads. There there are notes. There's a taste of each of those pictures in my script. And I think that's okay. You know, um... Because those are films that always stuck with me. Even though I only saw them once as a kid, they stuck with me. And it wasn't until I was an adult that I was able to view them multiple times. And they're just films that live rent-free in my brain. And I, I really, I've really i only seen each film maybe twice. But I still remember nearly every frame of each of them. Maybe it's because I don't drink or smoke or use drugs, and my brain is very clear. I have a really good memory. I remember all these scenes and the dialogue, and the names escape me. The names of their characters escape me. But I remember the scenes and how I felt and the emotions I was going through when I was a kid when I watched them, and as an adult, and how I felt about them and the impact it had on me. And I think that was that's worth it. Even if my screenplay that was inspired by *Rolling Thunder* and *Straight Time* doesn't do anything, um, at least I wrote it, and it was satisfying to me. So I'm gonna um, at some point soon listen to the commentary track on this a Warner Archive Collection Blu-ray and watch the vintage featurette and pick up some Eddie Bunker books because I love crime fiction. And I love Elmore Leonard, and um, I, I really love The Friends of Eddie Coyle as well. That's a great, great, great crime film, and Robert Mitchum is fantastic in that movie. I read the book. The book is really good. And, yeah, I, I like, it's not just, I don't just like shallow films. I, I, I love Jello films, I do, but I, I really do like crime films with the flawed anti-hero, of course. Now, Rolling Thunder is a very different film than this. the I felt very neutral about um, Captain Major Rain, where for Max, I just felt more for him. And I think it's just because Dustin Hoffman is such a fucking amazing actor. He's so good. I mean, he is Max Dembo. He is that guy. He's so emotive in his speech, in his, his face, in his eyes, the way he looks. He sells it. You believe him. He's so sincere. Fantastic actor, he is. So I love his character so much. And I love this movie. So at some point, I'd like to rewatch uh, The Friends of Eddie Coyle and talk about it on the show. Been a long time, but it's fantastic, and I highly recommend that you check out Rolling Thunder. You can pick it up fairly cheap—twenty bucks. Straight Time, this was like eighteen bucks, and uh, watch them for yourselves because they're fantastic. Rolling Thunder definitely feels more like a grindhouse flick. Um, straight Time does not; it feels like a, a Hollywood picture. So. But it does have that grittiness, that sleaziness to it because Hoffman and Gary Busey are sweaty <laughs> sweaty guys. Not much in the way of violence or blood in this, but um, what there is is effective. Now you can if you're interested in learning more about the show, you can follow me on Letterboxd Film Trauma Podcast. I don't want to update my Instagram, but it's Film Trauma Pod. I do try to update Twitter every now and then but I've been I've been um, writing a lot rewriting the script a lot two scripts at the same time which I swore I would never do but it, that's what I'm doing um, film trauma podcast or film trauma yeah podcast on Twitter and you can listen to the show on Anchor FM Spotify Apple Podcast Amazon Music Audible Sirius XM Stitcher Pandora uh, Anywhere that good podcasts are found You'll find me Please give my show a like And send me some positive vibes Because nobody listens to this show And I'm completely invisible out there Which is kind of exhilarating in a way Because I'm only doing this show for myself My co-host Rob is not here tonight It is Super Bowl Sunday And I assume that he's out uh, Enjoying the Super Bowl doing his thing. Um, I really wanted to talk about these films. It had been such a long time since I'd done an episode, and I couldn't wait. We've been talking about these for a while, Rob and I, and I just I couldn't wait any longer. So sorry, Rob. Sorry that I uh, cut in on here and had to, had to get the episode out, but I'll be back at some point and talk with Rob after he watches these films. And we're going to do Shogun Assassin and these uh, Shaw Brothers films. And Iron Monkey is coming up, too, because Iron Monkey actually is released on Blu-ray in the U.S. on um, Valentine's Day, and I'm really excited for Iron Monkey. So that is one of my favorite martial arts flicks of all time. Shogun Assassin was very good, Um, but Iron Monkey is really, really good, too. Like, 93, I think. You can't be a Shogun Assassin, though, right? And all the Lone Wolf and Cub movies are, are fantastic. But um, I do have the Arrow, Shawscope, box sets, and I've got Shogun Assassin. There's a five-movie set, Lone Wolf and Cub. We'll be talking about those soon. Try to get away from the giallo for a while. Take a giallo break because um, they're just there's a lot going on with those films. But anyway, this has been Film Trauma, Straight Time, and Rolling Thunder.